This morning we're going to have Brooks and Ashley Igo, old friends of mine from my other call, my other life, um, RUF at SMU. Brooks is now a deacon in our church, and they're going to come up and read God's word for us together. So if you would, go ahead and come up, and you guys can stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 11.20. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And now Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray your grace upon us now. Give us attention. Um, Father, give us hearts that are responsive to you as we um, understand your grace given to us and your son through the life of Isaac. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever looked up to someone in your own life who you would say demonstrated remarkable faith? Uh, someone of whom you would say he or she unmistakably trusts God in life. You ever met someone like that? I bet you have. I want you to reflect for a moment. What was it about them that made you reach that conclusion? Uh, was it poise? Uh, was it peace? Was it joy in the face of really difficult circumstances? Prayer. Was it courage? Was it sacrifice? Was, was it the right words? always flowed from their mouth at the right time? What was it that made present, made visibly present, faith in his or her life? Then a question for us this morning, what will it be that shows that we here at PCPC are a people, a community of remarkable faith? That's where Hebrews 11 can help us this morning. Hebrews 11 is the chapter that has held our attention this summer. And the writer of Hebrews, we'll call him the preacher, is extremely interested not only in giving you a definition of faith, which he does very clearly in verse 1, chapter 11, but really more than anything else, he wants you to know how, how faith becomes incarnate, how faith is enfleshed, how it's practiced in the life of real individuals. And so Hebrews... 11 is a list of almost 20 names from the Old Testament. Many of these names are names that you know, whether you've been around church very long or not. Names like Abraham and Noah, David and Moses, these are the A-listers of the Old Testament. And there are some names you probably aren't as familiar with. Names like Barak, Jephthah, Rahab, Enoch. Almost 20 names of various significance from the thousands of years of biblical history. And all of those names basically have two things in common. The first is this. Every one of the individuals mentioned have moral failures on their ledgers. They all have moral failures on their resumes. And some have some remarkable moral failures on their resumes. 
Things like cowardice, murder, substance abuse, adultery, prostitution, racism. These names are no angels, and the Bible never attempts to hide it. You can imagine in your own life if some of your most shameful moments were recorded and now translated in thousands of languages for a hundred generations to read about. If, if, you're, um, uh, if you are someone who loves transparency, if that's your soapbox, you should love the Bible. The Bible never hides the flaws of its characters. The second thing that all of these names have in common is that even in the face of moral failure, they are considered men and women of heroic faith. They are heroes in their faith. Which should tell us something pretty startling, I think, maybe about faith this morning as we sit here and think about it. And that is this, that, that faith, genuine faith, must be something other than moral perfection. Or there is no Hebrews 11. <laughs> there are no names to hold out to you. There are no examples to show you. Faith itself cannot be flawlessness. What is it then? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us. Faith is entrusting ourselves to a God who is able to finish what our own lives cannot. Faith is entrusting ourselves to a God who can finish what our own lives cannot. The preacher in Hebrews 12 says, look to Jesus who is the author, the founder, and the finisher, the perfecter of your faith. Now, these ancient characters never knew his name. That's exactly what they have to teach us. That we are to live and to work and to journey towards a goal that we cannot reach unless the grace of God perfects that journey for us. God has to do it or it will never get done. I want to show you just for the next few minutes this morning what that looked like in the life of Isaac. And how it is that we are supposed to be Isaacs in our own time and place. Who was Isaac? Well, Isaac receives by far the least amount of attention of any of the patriarchs in Genesis. I always used to imagine Isaac as sort of like the honeydew in a fruit salad, right? So, um, you know, the filler fruit, the stuff that no one really wants. It's just sort of, it takes up room between all the other good stuff. I apologize to the four people who like honeydew this morning. Actually, Isaac is one of the most uh, important characters because Isaac is the first occasion of God fulfilling the promises that he had made to Abraham. Isaac is the first child of the covenant. Isaac is the first child entrusted to carry forward God's vision of renewal. So what was God's vision of renewal? What was the Abrahamic covenant? What, it was basically three promises. The first promise was a promise of a land. God promised Abraham to give him a home. It was to be a new version of Eden. It was called what? The promised land, right? And no matter how you twist the Hebrew, that never means Texas, okay? The promised land. God promised Abraham to bring him home. The second promise given to Abraham was the promise of a people. God promised Abraham descendants, but it wasn't just descendants. What he was really promising Abraham was disciples. He was promising Abraham people who would represent his care and his character out in the world. 
And then finally, the most important promise of all. God promised Abraham expansion. He looked at him at the end and he said, Abraham, all the nations of the world, all the nations will be blessed through you. You see, the Abrahamic covenant, as far back as the Old Testament, was never just for Israel. It was never just for one tribe or one people or one tongue. It was always multicultural. See, way before it was modern and it was cool and it was hip, God was a God of diversity. God cared about diversity. So you have a promise of a home. You have a promise of a community. And you have the promise of cosmic expansion and reconciliation in a diverse world. I ask you, that was given, what, three, 4,000 years ago? Is that still relevant for you today? Do you long for a home? Do you long for a place to belong? You want friendships. You want community. You want a people. Do you want to see reconciliation take place in our world? The promises given to Abraham through which Isaac was meant to carry were ambitious promises that speak to the longings of who you are as a human being. And the first occasion for the fulfillment of these things is a little baby boy whom Abraham names Isaac. Okay? And do you know what Isaac's name means? Isaac's name means he laughs. He laughs. It's a moniker for the absurdity of the situation that Abraham and Sarah, who are well beyond parenting age, are given this little baby boy upon whom all the promises of God will stand or they will fall. He laughs. He laughs out of joy and he laughs out of absurdity. And the absurdity would continue because just a few years later when, when Isaac was still a boy, his adoring father Abraham woke him early one morning before the sun had risen in the darkness. And he said, Isaac, I want you to prepare yourself for a journey. We are going to worship the God, Yahweh, the God who makes and keeps his promises. And they began a journey together. And it was about a 30-day journey to Mount Moriah. Only when they got there, this adoring father, without a lamb, to which Isaac is confused, Abraham binds his beloved son, the son of the promise. He takes him to the top and he ties his hands together and he ties his feet together and he lifts him up on the altar meant for the sacrifice. And Abraham lifts his own hand with a knife in it and he prepares to sacrifice his son in obedience to God. And you can imagine that at that moment there was no one laughing. And in that moment... When Isaac's life was all but over, his fate sealed. At that moment, with the knife held high, that promise-keeping God, Yahweh, intervened. And he spoke, and he stayed the hand of Abraham, and he wiped Abraham's tears, and he lifted the head of Isaac. And then he provided the lamb. He provided the lamb for which father and son had longed for all along. Now, I tell you, we often imagine that story from Abraham's perspective, but can you imagine it for a moment from Isaac's perspective? I mean, you have childhood memories, right? Some things that have sort of stayed with you in life. Can you imagine that this scene stayed with Isaac? For the rest of his life, Isaac must have known in his bones what it meant to be delivered. He must have known in his bones, experientially, what it meant 
for God to raise the dead, for God to free the captive, for God to ransom the condemned. Isaac knew what it was like to have his life returned to him as a gift. He knew what it was like in his bones to belong body and soul to God. That must have loomed pretty powerfully in Isaac's imagination, don't you imagine? But you know this to be true. Just because something is important, just because you learn something in a very emotionally charged way, doesn't mean you always live by it, right? I'm sure you made vows at some point. Some of you who are married, you all probably made vows if you're married. You made vows and you were emotionally charged in that moment when you made those promises, and yet can you say that you've always lived exactly out of those promises? Maybe you have a conversion story that you wish you had always lived out of the moment of that memory in your own heart and life. You know, Isaac didn't do that very well at all. In fact, the rest of Isaac's life is sort of a mess. From here on out, we don't know very much about Isaac. We know that he married Rebecca. Okay? And Isaac and Rebecca together had uh, two boys. They were twins, Esau and Jacob. From the day of their birth, Isaac's family was a mess. Isaac's family was a complete mess. In fact, his family was a family in the way that most of us know the word. (laughs) Some good, a lot of dysfunction as well. Uh, uh, Jealousy and rivalry between the two boys, between uh, Jacob and Esau. Not only that, but there was favoritism from the parents. Esau was delivered first, and then Jacob came out second. And Jacob, it's very clear from his birth, never, ever wanted to be second. Do you want to be second? (laughs) Probably not. And so Jacob, he came out clutching the heel of Isaac because he wanted the privilege, he wanted the honor and the dignity of being the firstborn son. And so so Jacob longed for that all of his life. And Isaac never helped things. In fact, as a dad, Isaac only deepened the hole in Isaac's heart because the Bible tells us that Isaac clearly preferred Esau. Why? Well, Isaac, I mean, Esau was the strong, independent type, skillful hunter, would go out in the world and would kill what he wanted and bring it home for everyone to feast on. He was the one that dad would go, would sort of puff up when he talked about him. He would strut about it and he would tell stories about to his friends. And Jacob? Jacob preferred the kitchen. Jacob clung to mom's ankles Uh, Jacob was resourceful, but he was quiet. And the Bible basically calls Jacob a mama's boy. In fact, in uh, Genesis 25, it says this, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. I want you to imagine that. Maybe some of you have lived in situations like that. I want you to imagine the mess of that rivalry. And I want you to imagine the mess of that favoritism. And I want you to compound it by years and years and years. Take all of the years of dysfunction, all the years of discord and deception, all those years of hurt and longing. I want you to take all of that in your own imagination, and I want you to leave it there as the backdrop for Genesis 27. Because this is the final scene in Isaac's life. Isaac is lying on his deathbed. He is spent. He is weak. He can't see very well at all. It's about... It's it's about the end for Isaac. And the time finally comes to do the thing that a father was called to do, one of the most important components of his life, the way to end his life. 
He called his sons into him, and he was supposed to bless them and to send them out into the world to carry forward the family legacy. This is the finale. This is the finale for Isaac, and it does not go well. Because Jacob, who is still longing for the favor of his father, and in conspiracy with his mother, it sounds like a soap opera, it is a little bit, a lot of the Old Testament is, he pretends to be his older brother Esau, to take hold of the firstborn blessing. Jacob finally sees an opportunity for him to be preferred, for him to be uh, called the one, for him to be chosen. And he goes into his father, and he dresses up like Esau, and he deceives his father, and he acquires the firstborn blessing that is meant for his brother. He leaves the room. A few minutes later, Esau comes in. He waltzes in, still soaking with sweat and smelly. He had just come in from a hunting trip, and he is as oblivious as ever. Isaac hears the door slam, and he hears him walk in, and he asks, who's there? And Esau responds, Father, it is me, your firstborn son. And in that moment, Isaac puts together the truth for the first time in his mind. He puts together the truth of what Jacob has done. And do you know how Isaac responds there on his deathbed? The Bible says that he trembled violently. His whole body convulsed at the awareness of what had taken place. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy to read that scene and read that moment and think, why? Why can't you just take it back? I mean, why can't you just nullify what you told? Call Jacob back in. Let's right this wrong. Let's undo this. It's just words, right? But you see, Isaac understands something that is incredibly hard for us to admit in our day and in our age. There are some things in life that you cannot take back. There are some things in life that are beyond our power to undo. Words are one of those things. Some of you know this because you've died a million deaths inside from the words of another. And you know now that no amount of regret could reverse those words for you. Others of you still tremble violently with Isaac at things that you have done to the people that you loved because you know where you sit this morning that you cannot take them back. I think it's fair to say that our current social unrest, where we are as a city, in our neighborhoods, as a country, it's a kind of violent trembling. We are experiencing painful convulsions at the things that we lack the power to take back in our own history. At the very things that we lack the power to undo. You see, the blessing had been given to Jacob. These were not just words, they were more like wedding vows, and Isaac knows himself there were no takebacks. And guess what? Esau knows it too because he never asked for it. What is Esau's response? Isaac himself begins trembling, and Esau begins to wail and to beg. He cries out for his father to give him any sort of blessing that's left over. Because Esau knows this is a zero-sum game we're playing here. Isaac can't manufacture more blessing. What has been given has been given, and one person's gain is another person's loss, and so all Esau can hope for now are the leftovers 
from what his, bro his brother had plundered already. Esau asked for the leftovers, and he gets those leftovers, and they are leftovers that pale in comparison to what Jacob received. Now listen to me. It's a long story, I know. This is how it ends for, for Isaac. Esau vows to kill his brother Jacob. Jacob leaves home a fugitive with the blessing but on the run, never ever to see his parents again. And this is how Isaac dies. There is no bow to be tied up. There is no resolution to celebrate. Isaac himself dies with almost everything that he cares about unfinished and broken. So isn't it ironic that the writer of Hebrews points to this scene as the proof that Isaac was a man of heroic faith? Here's what the preacher says. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and on Esau. Friends, the only way that any of this makes sense this morning is if faith is not really about Isaac's achievements at all. That Isaac's faith is not about his own ability to right the wrongs that he took part in. It's not about his ability to fix his family. It's not about his ability to fulfill the actual promises that were entrusted to him. Faith must be about something else entirely. It must be about what Isaac trusted God to do, that his own life would never finish. Do you see that? Jesus must have been the finisher of Isaac's story, or he dies a loss. In the next few minutes, I just want to show you two ways that Jesus finishes his story. The first is this. Decades after Isaac's death, if you know the story, much later, decades after Isaac's death, God actually intervenes and he ends the hostility between Jacob and Esau. God intervenes and he ends the hostility between Jacob and Esau. He redeems a brotherhood that for all of his life, it was impossible for Isaac to fix. Have you ever felt powerless to fix those you love? You ever felt powerless to fix your family? You probably are. But like you, Isaac must have hoped for a day when God would actually do something, when he would heal the strife between his boys. And though he never lived to see it, God's grace did something powerful in Esau's own heart because after decades of wandering away from home, they hadn't seen each other in decades. Jacob is finally ready to come back and to confront the brother that longs to kill him. And here is what Genesis 33, 4 says when Esau sees him. Esau ran to meet him, and he embraced him, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him, and together they wept. Could you imagine that Isaac longed for that scene? Do you know that Isaac imagined that scene, that he hoped for that scene, and yet he was powerless to bring it about? Only God and his grace could create it. It was a new brotherhood. It was a new reconciliation where before only fear and hostility had been. Do we need that in our own families? Do we need that in our city? Don't we need injustices that are impossible to undo? And hostility that is beyond our power to heal? Don't we need a new brotherhood to emerge 
between two parties, two sides coming together in humility with tears over the past. Friends, it is incumbent upon us to be like Isaac. It is incumbent upon us to hope for the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau in our own day and in our own age. In our families, in our city, to trust the grace of God can finish something that we may never see finished before we die. That's the first way God finishes the story. Here's the second. The second is even more powerful, perhaps even the thing that undergirds the first. Do you remember what Isaac did when he learned of Jacob's deception? Remember what he did? He trembled violently. He trembled violently. Why? Because he knew there were no tape backs. He knew that it was a zero-sum game, that the thing that had been given to Jacob could never fall upon Esau. If Jacob was the firstborn, then Esau could never be. But God does something for Isaac, I think, more than he ever dreamed possible. See, in the gospel, God gives us Jesus. Paul tells us that Jesus is the true firstborn of all creation. He is the firstborn of God. God gives us Jesus to come and to live with us. He comes and he shares our sorrow and he shares our pain. And then just as Isaac is ransomed by a lamb, Jesus himself becomes the ransoming lamb for every tribe and every tongue and every nation, just as the Abrahamic covenant had always envisioned. And not only does he die in our place, and free us from the bonds of sin and death. But the Bible says that this Jesus unites you to himself in his life, in his reign and in his resurrection. And you say, Chad, I've heard that before. It sounds good, very lofty theological language. What does it matter? It matters for this reason. It means that in Jesus Christ, we are all firstborn sons of God. In Jesus Christ, the blessing and the dignity and the honor of the firstborn now belongs to Jacob and it belongs to Esau and it belongs to you where you sit this morning. This morning, God himself can look at you as the one, as the firstborn, as his favored and cherished individual, as if you were the only one in the world. And it also means that in Christ, there are no second-born leftovers anymore. There are no seconds. There are no second-born races. There are no second-born tribes. There are no no second-born nations or citizens. No second-born genders. There are no second-born sinners. There are no second-born saints. There are only firstborns in the kingdom of God. Friends, where I, where I think that Isaac could hope for and he could imagine a day where maybe God would intervene in the story of his children and maybe one day God would reconcile those two boys, I don't think Isaac ever envisioned a day where he could look out at the multitudes of the world and say that every tribe and every tongue and every nation would be a firstborn son of God. And here's the point. Faith is not only trusting that God can finish your story in the ways that you can imagine. That he can undo your wrongs. That he has the power to bring down and intervene the things that you want to happen that you can imagine. Faith is also trusting that God himself can finish our story in in ways that are beyond our wildest imagination. In In ways that our imagination has not even gone yet. 
The Apostle Paul put it like this. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Yet, your, your imagination hasn't gone there yet. So what does this mean for us as we leave today? I want to end here where we started this morning and ask the question, what will it be that shows that we are a people of faith? That we here at Park City's Presbyterian Church are people who live by faith. We need to be a people who are committed to imagining renewal together. A people who are committed to imagining all the possibilities of renewal in our families, in our places of work, in our city. We have to be a people who imagine renewal together. And this imagination, this vision, this, uh, this thought, this hope, it should be so ambitious and so expansive that it does honor to the vision of God. And it forces us to say as a people, forces us as a church to say, just as Isaac did on his own deathbed, if Jesus does not finish this, then it will never get done. If God does not intervene and carry this vision to its fulfillment, then it will never get done. That is living by faith in the image of Isaac. It is to live for what is beyond our power to achieve. To live to do what is beyond the expectations of everyone around us, beyond the expectations of the status quo. It's to hope for and to pray for and to work for the really big things in our world. Things over which we just lamented for the first 15 minutes of worship this morning. Things that are so beautiful and so grand that it will take the intervening power of the King of Kings to finish. And may it be that when it's our time to depart, when we find ourselves on our own deathbeds, that we have no claims of perfections in ourselves, but we rest knowing that Jesus is the one who is committed to finishing our story. May we spend ourselves in that direction with courage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for the story of Isaac. Lord, we pray that you would lift our heads as you did for him when he was a boy so long ago. That you would make it true of us that we would know in our bones what it means to be unbound. What it means to be delivered by you. Oh Lord, and that we would have such an expansive vision of your renewing work in our city. In our families. In our places of work. That we would pray so boldly that it is extremely clear that if you don't do it, if you don't intervene, then it cannot be done. Lord, we pray that we would work towards that even if we die and it's unfinished. Give us that kind of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.